What's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to the show. You know the show. This is Bobby Talks. Dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you there's always more to the story. Uh, kind of want to pull the curtain back a little bit on who I am as a person. I feel like I've been trying to revamp this show a little bit. Just kind of, you know, polish off a little bit of the edges and kind of come to terms with what I believe this show is. And over the years, uh, I've done this now too. This would be my third year. Over the years, I have kind of thought it was just a show about sitting down with interesting people doing interesting things. But what is the niche of the show? And I've been struggling to kind of find out what that is. Well, recently I've been really trying to dissect and analyze what that is because I believe we have something here. And uh, the feedback that I get from the listeners and the followers and subscribers that I have is that, you know, this show needs to be heard by more and more people. How can I do that? Well, that's my responsibility. What I found in my search and that I'm not 100% sure is the correct answer to the terms, but is it's this idea that I need to pull the curtain back on my life because Bobby Talks is really about dissecting my human um, themes and dissecting the things that I'm interested in, but all in which, you know, kind of the idea of what we all share uh, as, a, you know, the commonality commonalities of, um, you know, from you to me, what are those things and uh, how can we get to a place where we can uh, have a greater tolerance of each other or a greater understanding of why we do the things we do. Um, with that being said, this episode is heavily on the idea of fatherless millennials and the implications and struggles that came with that. I sat down on the show today with a guy named Roman Prokopchuk. He's a immigrant out of Ukraine. He came here when he was five years old. Um, him, his aunt, his mother, his father, his brother, his grandma and his grandpa. And uh, we sat down, we had an interesting conversation and it was one that uh, really showcased two ide ideas of distant fathers. One of a father who was in the household, uh, domestic abuse, very not present, um, you know, things of that nature. That would have been Roman's case. In my case, my father wasn't in my life, which then caused a byproduct of other other things that came from it. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing on the show going forward is just kind of like showing the mirror back at me a little bit, pulling the curtain back so you guys get a greater understanding of who I am. And then maybe in route to that, you'll get a greater understanding of you um, because I want this show now to kind of be, you know, sitting down with human beings, talking about human themes all while en route to my own personal legend and self-truths and self-discovery. And along the way, what are the commonalities that we share? So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I really, really enjoyed talking with him. He's a fascinating cat out of New Jersey. And just, though, you know, one more thing to kind of touch upon. I just want this message to be clear is that it's going to sound like there's some times where I may be bitter towards my father. But I can pretty much 100% reassure you that at 35 years of age, I have no better feelings towards my father. As a matter of fact, I don't think I ever have. Um, I was disappointed, you know, when I kind of could get a better understanding of what was taking place because I really think he's a fascinating man and I would have liked to have shared more of my time with him growing up. Um, but now uh, there's still time to be had and that's something that I am going to make uh, – uh, prevalent in my life to continue to reach out to him and as he does reach out to me now um, I think uh, we can have a really good uh, relationship as two grown men so with that being said I do love you father but uh, this is a dive and dissection of what happened and the byproducts that came with it from both Roman and I I hope you guys enjoy the show stay tuned for the intro and uh, that's it
Welcome everyone to Bobby Talks, dot, dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you that there's always more to the story. And today's story is an entire generation left behind by their fathers. Talking about the millennial generation and the baby boomers that came before them. I'm sitting here today with a uh, first immigrant out of Ukraine. His name is Roman Prokopchuk. Did I say that right, man? Yeah, you're good. That was that was spot on. How are you? I'm good, man. He is. Uh, he he's like I said, he's an immigrant out of Ukraine. Now he's currently hailing out of Trent, New Jersey. He is a uh, someone that came over here when he was five years of age. Um, so you you have been indoctrinated into the American um, way of life. Your pretty much your entire memories that you can think of. Um, I, uh, I I I want to say. Um, I, I personally appreciate you coming on the show today and uh, talking about this with me because I've reached out to some friends and they just say it's just too personal to them. Um, the topic today is what I introduced, but I think that you and I have a lot of things that we'll probably touch on. Um, before we get to uh, the, the the topic of the show, man, like uh, how, how's things going over there? We, we had a little bit of trouble with the mic. We got it all fixed. Seems like we're all squared away. How's things going on your end, man? How you doing, Roman? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I think we're uh, we're good for the time being. Good. I'm glad to hear it, brother. Um, you you have any uh, interesting um, take on the current invasion of uh, Russia to Ukraine? Just because you know, I, I, it's the obvious low hanging fruit with you. Um, just because you were currently when you were living there as a child, you, it was currently still occupied by you know, the USSR there. And now um, it, it's not, but it is currently being invaded and parts of it is occupied. So like, what is, what is your initial thoughts on that? Um, and I can't imagine that you, well, I, I can imagine that you probably still know people over there. Yeah. I mean, I have three members of my family in the military currently serving. So originally when um, it started in February, they uh helped defend kiev in terms of like that advance uh and currently they're in the east of the country and i still have family members in Lviv, which where i was born it's on the western side of ukraine which is close to the uh, polish border it's a uh, unesco world heritage site so it's you know hundreds and hundreds of years old and uh in kiev lutsk uh, odessa and other areas so this isn't one of those things where it's like a lot of people in the news, it's like, you know, uh, the West, uh, you know, poke the bear. It could have been avoided. Eventually, it would have been an inevitable if you look at history of the region for hundreds of hundreds of years. Even in like the 16th, 15th century, uh, Russia kind of invaded the, the Russian Empire, invaded the area and basically tried to wipe out the Ukrainian language, the Ukrainian culture. They often say that, um, you know, the Slavic kind of people, those countries, you know, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, and so on and so forth, originated kind of from Moscow. So Kiev was around when Moscow was like not even a village. So it's basically a forest. But throughout history, there was uh, mistreatment by Russians, the USSR of the Ukrainian people. Um, in like the 1920s, 1930s, basically in the area they currently are, the Donbass, uh, which is Ukraine is actually known as the breadbasket of Europe as well. So you probably saw like Russia blockading the Black Sea and not letting grain supplies go to like Africa and the Middle East, but potentially causing a famine. 
So basically in that time, uh, Russia took all the food out. So all the grain, everything, livestock, and, you know, millions of Ukrainians died of famine. And there were several uh, forced famines, different genocides for hundreds of hundreds of years. So we're used to Russian aggression. And um, a lot of Ukrainians are very cautious throughout history in terms of, you know, Russia and what Russia says, because oftentimes Russia says one thing and does another. So it's not it's not surprising to me or, you know, other Ukrainians could have been avoided. Maybe, maybe not. Would have would have it happened at some point? Uh, I mean, I almost guarantee it would have been at some point in the same situation. Yeah, you said something interesting there. Um, you said that the uh, West kind of poked the bear and it could have been you think it could have been avoided, or at least potentially. Well, what do you mean exactly by uh, by the West poking the bear? Uh, I some people will will say that. I personally don't because I mean I'm from like one of the most patriotic cities in Ukraine, like nationalist uh, nationalism. So Russia says like you know all the rebellions and stuff originated from the area I'm from. So very patriotic people and region but um just kind of uh i wouldn't say antagonizing but uh pushing ukraine and, and talking about joining nato which is um irrelevant because now i think putin got the worst of the situation because now sweden and finland applied to join nato so before right. it was ukraine and they wanted ukraine and still the uh, sphere of influence and he wanted to kind of rebuild that former Soviet empire. Well, now you have Sweden and Finland, which is uh, close to the border, if not obviously some share some border with Russia. So in that sense, uh, I think that kind of backfired. But it, it, it's kind of like, I don't know, calling a bluff. And there was a lot of talk and a lot of rhetoric. And obviously it, this didn't just start in uh, 2014. Obviously, Russia annexed Crimea and then moved in basically and supported the uh, uprising in the east of the country as well. But I mean, uh, diplomatically, I think there was a lot of a language. Um, and then for, for a while, Russia was just saying that they're doing military games when they're just amassing large amounts of equipment and men all around the borders of Ukraine. So, you know, be it as it may, it, it happened. Um, I, don't, I don't think diplomacy really works with Russia. Russia basically, um, I wouldn't say backs down, but it's somewhat intimidated when you show a, a, a you know, force, basically strength militarily or with action. If you just want to go to the table with Russia, they'll say one thing and really do another diplomatically. So, yeah, I mean, I, we, we talked about this on my last episode of my show was, uh, I sat down with Nathan Dufour and, um, psychology professor and, uh, uh, we just kind of, uh, or I'm sorry, philo philosophy professor. We talked about what is the value of human life, and uh, the the conversation kind of talked about some of the same, you know, talking points that you were touching on as far as with Russia. Um, yeah, it, 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 you can call their bluff. You can. The problem is, is that like uh, us as the United States, right? You know, we're over here watching it from afar, so we've got to kind of watch our rhetoric, and we've got to navigate what we say because if not. Maybe, you know, it is Putin unhealthy. You know, there's been talks about that. And maybe this is, you know, like a mad dog kind of doing some crazy things before he's on his way out. So there's always that kind of possibility that sits in the back of your mind. And it's like, OK, you got to take everything with caution here. 
Um, cause if not, then it's going to be at your front doorstep rather than, you know, you know, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away. So, um, uh, you also said something else. I wanted to just kind of get your perspective real quick as before we kind of navigate down the waters, we're going to go down. You said, uh, do you have any, you know, memories as a child, um, in Ukraine that show that would showcase some of like the Russian aggression just to kind of paint a picture for our <laughs> listeners? Or is it only yeah. basically the stories that you've been told? What what do you no, remember as uh, far as firsthand accounts? No, I mean, we, we theoretically came here as um, religious, I guess, uh, refugees. So under communism, there is theoretically no religion. Kind of you serve the state. The state is in a way your God uh, per se. So, uh, you know, my family believed in God, uh, you know, Jesus Christ and and practiced and, you know, went to church, prayed, meet, met up in terms of fellowship. And in that sense, every time you went to church or did something or met at a house, you'd be followed by the KGB. People would be waiting kind of outside, writing down who you were, so on and so forth. Um, uh, poets, songwriters that wrote patriotic songs in Ukrainian, something about freedom, stuff like that would disappear, sometimes end up dead. Um, especially in my city. Um, I mean, I remember things like waiting in bread lines. So it's kind of like a first world versus third world problem. I often say that when I kind of get caught up in situations like, you know, I'm waiting too long for like my food in line. Okay. Well, it's an extra two minutes. It's not like, you know, you're, you're, you're going hungry, but waiting in line, I mean, different shortages. So uh, things internationally are from like warmer climate climates. I remember like oranges or clementines and stuff like that were like a treat. So like you would have it on special occasions because there was, you know, they were in scarcity. Um, even though, I, I mean, I would argue if give me someone that's in favor of communism for somebody to show me a real world example where it actually worked out the way it is in the books, this utopian kind of situation, which I haven't really seen. So, I mean, there were the rich that got rich and then there's, you know, everybody else that just kind of got by. Uh, I, Ukraine currently still has it, but uh, at the time also had a, a big black market economy. So people would have gardens outside of the city and be sustainable like that. People bartered, people traded and got by like that. Um, you know, my grandmother worked at like, um, at like a, a warehouse type thing where goods would come in both, uh, within the Soviet union and internationally. And like her boss would, her bosses would hustle. So like, you know, trade, you know, sell things that, you know, fell off the truck in a way. So there was a lot of that, but I mean, I remember in terms of being in church and just people standing outside and monitoring and really like waiting in long lines for things. That's kind of like the extent of what I remember. Yeah, man, that's uh completely, that's a complete opposite of what my childhood was growing up. Right. Um, we kind of take, uh, take for granted some of the things, you know, you just, not that you do it purposely, but, uh, it's just something that, that happens, right. It's a privilege that I was born into. And then fortunately you were not. Um, but, your story is one of a comeback story. Um, and you came over here when you were five, kind of paint the picture of who all came, um, whose idea it was. And then, uh, I'll kind of set the, set the table for our viewers and listeners, um, about today's topic. 
Yeah, so we came over in March of 1990. We landed in New Jersey. That, during that time, it was like Pedestroika when like the Berlin Wall fell. They started loosening uh, immigration laws. They would uh, started to let people out, and um, we basically got a sponsor. So basically, you get sponsored by a family member or a friend. Uh, a sponsor basically takes on responsibility of that person or persons coming over for like a, a, a short period of time uh, when they get on their feet. Right. So who's we though? Who, who's uh, who, who all came with you? Who who, who was with you? <laughs> so it was my uh, parents, my mom, my dad, uh, my grandparents, my aunt, and my younger brother, which was like uh, who was who was like. Uh, a few months old and we don't we didn't go directly there it was kind of like the journey from um everybody from my area in, in ukraine did the same thing we had to go through vienna austria rome italy and then we landed in the u.s originally i was supposed to end up in san mateo california and i ended up in a good old new jersey so i often think that dynamic that west coast east coast dynamic if i grew up in california how much differently like my my hobbies and my personalities and obviously like my core beliefs and you know being influenced by people around me how that would have been different if i ended up there yeah no that that's dude i'm midwest bred baby and i uh i've kind of traveled the east and west and i lived in uh the west for a while and it is a you're right it's a polar 180 um it would be interesting um i, t I tend to gravitate to kind of both i i have the, i love the big city feel but if you could kind of merge the big city of New York and kind of put that into, uh, you know, the the West Coast of, you know, temperature and water and all that, you kind of have a perfect little storm there for me. But um, so you kind of had the entire family come with you then. You guys settled down in Trenton or not necessarily Trent, but you settled down in New Jersey. Um, what was your your dynamic with your father? Because. What we're going to dive into today uh, is kind of this idea that there's an entire generation of people, especially American males, um, and your, your story is going to be a little bit unique to the American perspective as far as the history you know, of baby boomers and uh, the silent generation that came before them because you, you have your own, you know, your own generation and cultures and things of that nature. But um, for me personally, I... Uh, you know, I was born in 87. I'm 35 years of age. And uh, my mother <clears throat> and my father were never, ever a collective unit. Um, I think uh, maybe six months after I was born, he was kind of out of the picture, um, which is why I was so in close with my grandfather. My grandfather kind of stepped up and became my father. And for the last 35 years until recently this past winter when he passed away, I've had him in my life. Um and that's kind of caused some uh, some newfound struggles for me now that he's not present. And that's kind of why I wanted to kind of have this conversation because there's an entire generation of people that even though um, the, their fathers might have been in their lives, they still weren't present in their lives. And then there's that entire generation of kids that were just their fathers took off on them and single mothers had to raise the household. So what was your dynamic like with your father because you reached out to me and you said that uh, and I hope I'm not getting in trouble here but uh you know you said to me that you you never want to be like your father so <clears throat> yeah correct a picture uh, for us if you can yeah so um 
I mean, I I haven't been in Ukraine since 2008, but like the stigma of, of domestic violence, it was more accepted. Sometimes like the, the police would look another way. A lot of the time you wouldn't call the police for domestic violence or even uh, really get in trouble. So even when we were still in Ukraine, when I was, you know, two, three, four years old, I remember uh, my dad, uh, you know, beating my mom, my aunt, my grandparents, so on and so forth. Uh, when my mom was uh, pregnant with my brother, he threw her down the stairs, which he, she went to the doctor. He was supposed to be stillborn, but thank God, you know, he was born, no issues, anything like that. So uh, we came over here and that really uh, continued. So that kind of mindset, you know, um, I guess, man, I can do whatever, like, uh, the wife is theoretically, in a way, like my property, um, and I could do whatever. So that happened. I mean, he worked a lot. He was really never home. So it was my mom, my aunt, my grandmother, and like you said, my grandfather raising me. My grandfather was kind of my main uh, male role model. He actually also passed away a few years ago, um, which obviously hurt. But um, at that point, even when I was younger, when I saw... Uh, you know, my mom being beat. There was one time where he came and I was little and he was like beating my mom. And uh, I, I, I like vividly remember I got a knife from the kitchen and I was like almost, you know, ready to go over and just stab him at the time to protect uh, my mom, which obviously uh, would have been traumatic for me, uh, you know, consciously and whatever that situation would have happened if he was injured or, or died. But situations like that, um and you know there was infidelity there was just kind of like you said he was he was around he just came by he just liked like a family for pictures and events so you know going to weddings going to social functions with myself my mom and my brother and like look i'm a great husband and father look at my family so on and so forth but like many people and uh uh, you know, many people, what they're going through in their lives, it's like what you see in public or on social media isn't what happens behind uh, closed doors. So that continued happening and happening. And then finally, uh, when we were a little older, my mom uh, finally filed a restraining order. Um, she caught him cheating. And uh, one of the other things that subconsciously that I thought about over the years is uh, right now, uh, I'm not as heavily into it, but I started training, like weight training really heavy just to put on a lot of muscle um, when I was growing up kind of in my 20s. And like subconsciously, I think I did it to protect, you know, my mom and my grandparents and so on and so on and so forth. So when there was a situation where like he would possibly come back and try to do something, I wouldn't be that helpless, like, you know, three, four, five, six year old that just stood by and kind of watched that abuse happen. And there was actually a time where I, I, I remember I was, I was 23 and my mom threw him out of the house. That was literally the last time I saw him. So he's texted me uh, throughout just Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, nothing else, nothing. Hey, you know, I'm sorry for what happened or, you know, coming to terms with how he acted as a father that never happened. But since I was 23, so I'm 37. So um 14 years i haven't seen him in person and at that time i just like he got in her face and i was like you know you i'm not little anymore so you know you hit them whatever so hit me and see what happens like i was just kind of daring him to hit me because i was so kind of filled with rage at that time and i mean he's not a small dude so i mean i'm like 5'11 at the moment like 230 240 he was like 
you know, six two, six three, like two sixty, two seventy. Um, so but at the time I didn't really care. But it was just like one of those things where it was I, I mean, the audience and yourself probably has had a moment where you get kind of clouded by rage. You're so upset and the adrenaline is running so much that like you don't care what really happens in that situation. And that was kind of like I said, the last time I really saw him. And um as I was growing up, I, I told myself I wouldn't you know, treat women that way. I wouldn't treat my family that way. And kind of my grandfather was kind of the pillar of uh, example of what it is to be a man and be there for his family. You know, he worked nonstop. Uh, my work ethic, I think, is from him. He uh, worked six days a week roofing. He was retired in Ukraine, came over here at 55, and then worked roofing for another 20 years. Uh, a job in New Jersey where most people come over in their 20s just to make a few mon- a few dollars if they um, get a work visa, they quit after a few weeks because it's, sometimes it's unbearable because you're on a roof, you know, 100 degree weather or it's super cold and uh, it's, it's, it's a hard job. And then Sundays, you would go to church in the morning and at night and then, you know, back to kind of the grind. So he was there myself uh, for my, you know, grandmother my my mom and and her sister so that's kind of uh who uh i kind of try to mirror what it is to be a a father and you know uh, a man to me and um the the situation with my dad as well i mean it doesn't help that he was a narcissist so anytime you try to come back into my life it it was like i remember like 10 years ago he texted me he's like do you want to flip houses with me it's like nothing, no hi, how are you? Are you going through anything? Like, I'm sorry for what happened, or I'm sorry how, like, the last time I saw you, do you want to meet up and talk? It's like, let, let's flip houses. So it's like, well, there's an ulterior motive, and it was always like that um, during, you know, my whole uh, childhood into my teens and 20s, which led to me being a little bit more uh, careful with relationships and not being as trusting because I often think that, you know, what is the ulterior motive? Why is somebody being nice to me or why they're trying to help me or work with me? So that kind of impacted that aspect of, I guess, my mindset as well. Yeah. You and I, uh, we're an interesting case study, man, because you are going to, you're a byproduct of what it's like to have your father be in your life, right? Um, and I'm a byproduct of what it's like to not have my father present. So we're on kind of both ends and we're going to be able to bring some interesting conversation to this table. I think, um, lot, lot said there. Um, first of all, I, I got a question. Uh, was your grandfather the father to your father or was that the father to your mother? To uh, my mother. So then I guess before we dive into some of the, cause you already mentioned like you have major trust issues, uh, what do you, what do you chalk the reasons up when you try to, you know, you know, I, I'm sure you asked yourself a hundred times about why me, why us, you know, why, why does he treat us this way? Um, in your adult life now, when you look back on that, what do you, what do you think his reasons are? Why is he so angry? Uh, I think it's, it's his upbringing. So it's a cycle, like a generational thing. I don't think his dad was really um, there for him. Um, I never asked him, and I never asked, you know, my grandfather, his father. Um, I didn't have the conversation in terms of, you know, him being present, like present, present, not only, you know, living in the home, but actually being a father. And if he was abusive or not, 
but um i mean he had situation where he kind of bullied people he told the story he bullied somebody in the military because like there's there was still a conscript system under the soviet union so you'd have to serve like i don't know a year or two so he was bullying somebody and, and somebody was fed up and they put a gun to their head uh his head and said you're gonna keep bullying me i'm gonna i'm gonna blow your brains out so like i think that affected him in a certain way and um just i guess the relationships he had or the i guess the cultural di differentiations which isn't an excuse but like certain behavior was more tolerated than it is here yeah no it's not an excuse but it is uh it's a reality um it, it's interesting roman because like uh like my, my father, uh, who I said, you know, my story is a little bit different. You know, he, he kind of, uh, he was, he was gone when I was, like I said, I, I don't have any early memories with my, with my father. It was always with my grandfather and, you know, m my dad would just kind of pop in every now and then throughout my life up until about, I would say, you know, up until about 13, 14 years of age. Then all of a sudden I got a phone call one day and there was about a year of my life where he was very present. Um, he seemed to be settling down. He got married. Um, you know, life kind of was a little bit more traditional to the sense for him. Um, and uh, I, I can't say that my my father is a, you know, he's not a domestic abuser. He's not, you know, um, he, there's like a, there's not a lot or a, a history of like um, abusing of any substances. You know, I, I think he's drank and I know he pounded back cigarettes like it's his job. Um, but there's just a certain level, in my opinion, in my opinion, um, of unhappiness within him because it does go back. You're right. It's a cyclical nature. His father before him was, you know, he was a military man. He was, you know, a hyper um, masculine man. Um, you had to do things a certain way. So it's all cultural and it's all, you know, generational. Um, but for my father, the way and I look back and I kind of dissect the reasons why um, – there always seemed to be like a certain level of like, I don't know if bitterness is the right word, but like, um, um, I, I get a sense that he, he fucked up earlier in his life multiple times. Um, and he got to a place where he truly convinced himself that he didn't deserve happiness. And you mix that with like, um, constantly running from your responsibilities. Um, and then, validating why it's okay for you to res run from those responsibilities. Um, there's just, there's no way for him to ever improve on the situation. Um, I'd, I, I, I want to say that uh, I do know that my father has, you know, reached out. He does like want us to have a better relationship. And we do um, in the sense of like, um, you know, when I see him, I love him. I talk to him, things of that nature. But like, that's about where it stops. You know, it's it's all really now up to me now and how much I want him in my life. Um, I don't actually hold a grudge against my father, but I do know that everything that my grandfather, you know, he was 50 years of age when we met and he should have been kind of going on to enjoy the golden years of his. Um, and then my because of my father's absence, he decided to step up and, you know, take me on. He didn't have to do that. and He did. Um and so for that, it's like, uh, you know, shame on my father. And now that my grandfather passed away, I'm supposed to have, you know, the, 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 the next, um, um, route of this is supposed to be like, okay, you lose your, you lose your grandfather. You're supposed to have your father there for you. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, I felt like I kind of lost both my grandfather and my father in the same death. And that was, uh, uh, that's 
being a tricky situation, but there's a sense of like bitterness that comes from that generation. And I don't know if it's, you know, your father and my father both kind of like seeking attention because you talk about narcissism or you talk about ego. Um, they, he, I, you know, he, he likes to hear himself talk. That's for sure. Um, and you, you kind of filter through what's real and what's bullshit. Um, I don't know, man. I, I just wondered where that anger you think comes from. And you think it's generational when you talk about relationships, what was your mother like with you? Like when it was just you two or like what, what kind of, you know, cause too often you, the mothers are, you know, these spirit animals for their kids. They try to really overcompensate joy and all these things where the fathers are falling short. What was your mother like for you? <clears throat> yeah. So I think it was like one of those things where it wasn't only my mother because uh, my grandparents, her mom and uh, her dad and my aunt lived the town over. So they were literally, you know, 15, 20 minute drive. So it was kind of like it takes a village per se to, you know, raise a child. So they were consistently and constantly in my life. I would see them every week. So it was my mom, my aunt, my grandfather and my grandmother. Um, I don't know if she uh, compensated for the fact that like that attention or trying to make up for it because a lot of people uh, kind of try to fill that void. But I think, you know, having a mother and a father is important and they all have, you know, certain roles to play. And if even if they tried to mimic them, yes, you can do it to a certain extent, but it's not going to replace kind of the real thing. So I don't think they she really tried to um, overdo it. But she was very loving. She was very affectionate. She was there for me. She was encouraging. I think because of my father, I, the first time I like told my mom that I love her was like into my teens. It was just like so hard, like for me to say I love you. I don't know because of my dad or what the situation was, but I, like I distinctly remember the first time was like I was in high school and I actually told my mom I love you, and then consistently like started saying it. And, um, I, I don't know. It just, it, it's just like this weird thing. <laughs> what did mom have to say when you said that to her? Was she just shocked with, with glee or what? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess she was, um, emotional about it. Like, obviously she knew, uh, how my dad was, um, and the fact that, you know, he didn't necessarily raise us <clears throat> from the simple fact that um, I guess in Eastern Europe, like the mother plays a bigger role in raising the child. But but still, regardless, like, you know, if, if the father wanted to be as present as he wanted to be and, and play that role, they play that role. So I don't think he had an excuse, nor am I making an excuse for him. It was just like living with somebody that I don't necessarily, um, you know didn't necessarily care for based on the domestic abuse and the verbal abuse and stuff like that, emotional abuse. And the fact that, you know, he didn't participate in anything. She's the one that, you know, I remember distinctly, um, I don't have an accent because I, I, I wouldn't write into kindergarten, but she retained her accent. So I remember like second, third grade, she's quizzing me on, um, on, on spelling and like her spelling was, it's still like hilarious to me. And I make fun of her, not make fun of her maliciously about it, but like, uh, like the word was like skunk and she's like skunks and I'm like what are you what are you talking about what, what is that word and then she would get frustrated and pissed and then we kind of laugh it off so like just like that and I have those memories that he could have been 
uh, you know, involved in something as small as like, you know, going through a spelling test in elementary school that took five, 10 minutes. I still remember it because she was there. And regardless of how uh, good or bad her English was, she made an attempt to, you know, help me out with that. Yeah, that's that's the story of mothers, man. I uh, I can tell you one about my mom, like not necessarily, you know, an accent or anything like that, but like just the 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 um, relentless nature to always make sure that I am provided for. I have an older brother and a younger brother. We all have different fathers um, and none of them were present in our upbringing. And that was because my older brother's father uh, passed away when he was a child. And then uh, my mom kind of went the route of never going to marry again because that was her first and only. And uh, then she met my father, my father took off and then my younger brother's father had his issues. So we had to remove Cody or my younger brother from him. Um, So we kind of all lived the same uh, life, uh, all trying to, it's funny how three, how very different the three of us are, but um, we have our mother and we have our grandfather in common. And uh, I remember my mom, you know, saying to me, like, do you need help with your math? I can't help you but I will find somebody at the factory. She works a factory job who will do this. Like she was determined to have some stranger that I've never met before come sit down at the table with me and help me with my math if, if needed to be. And that's just cause, and that's just the spirit of, of mothers, man. Um, but you know, when I look at my father, there's a, uh, I'm a huge empathetic person and I'm also very grateful. And I, I kind of look back on my childhood as like, okay, you know, with the departure of my father, I gained my grandmother and my grandfather. Right. Um, so I look like I was I feel like I was raised by three parents. So to me, I I, I tend to be very uh, optimistic. And, and, you know, I look back on my childhood as if like this is the best, most optimal case for me. Um, who knows what my life would have been if my father's presence would have been and maybe it would have had, you know, I would have had a lot more of the uh, complications or challenges as an adult that maybe you, you faced, you know, you said you didn't tell your mother, you loved her until you were in your teens. That's a, that's a very, you know, alarming thing to hear as far as, you know, you talk about trauma in childhood. Um, but what do you think when you think about your father and you, you keep talking about like, you, you know, you don't, I, I can hear it in your voice and maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like you don't want to make any excuse for this man at all. Um, and that's, and I, that's understood but do you believe he was just a maliciously evil human? Or is there just a refusal on his part to acknowledge or like, why do you think, do you think privately, you know, like he had these battles with himself where he just cannot overcome or do you think he's just, just evil? Because as a kid and, and now you're in your thirties, almost pushing 40, you know, he doesn't overcome. He still to this day, hasn't sent you a text or saying, Hey, I'd like to say, I'm sorry for anything. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say evil, but like you have to be somewhat of a, I would say a scumbag to uh, throw a pregnant woman, your wife down the stairs that's carrying your child and not, think there possibly be consequences just because you get angry so like having the self-control to not take your anger out on people like i get angry at times too but 
I've never hit my wife. I've never been violent to any like woman in my life or showed any kind of aggression in that sense. And I learned, I, I took the prerogative of, of channeling that and really like harnessing that and, and getting rid of uh, my coping mechanism is really working out and pushing myself like physically. Um, and also, you know, going to therapy and coming to terms with situations, coming to terms that, you know, his behavior, how he was. So uh, I, I wouldn't say he was evil, but he was definitely not nice. And I think when he got angry, I think it was like more at that sense, like rage where he wouldn't stop. And like I said, he didn't necessarily was, was abusive towards my mom. I mean, it was my aunt, it was my grandparents on my mother's side. So like I said, when I grew up and uh, I started lifting, I got like really big, like obnoxiously big that I shouldn't really be carrying that much muscle around or, you know, I, I would have to eat so many meals a day just to naturally keep that muscle on. Just, I, 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 I thought about it and there's no other reason for me to get that big other than if I was competing to protect those around me to be more intimidating in that sense. Because I mean, if you look at like the animal kingdom, when people or animals fight over their territory, like you have to have some kind of uh, physical prowess or be intimidating. So I don't hate him. I, I actually like me personally, I forgave him. Um, that's on him. But I've over the years tried to meet him halfway, try to like look past like maybe he's not doing this from a, a position where like he's looking to get something and he's not genuinely trying to do something nice. And it was always like a letdown, a letdown, a letdown. <clears throat> and then, you know, you can't have the same thing happen over over again. And you as a person uh, take the same action towards that situation. Because I think, what is it? Like when you have the same result, you keep doing it. It's insanity or whatever people say. So it was like that. I, I, I invested so much trying to meet him halfway or just like let go of any ill will, you know, in my uh, teens, twenties into my thirties. And just like, you know, if he wants to have a conversation, I'll meet him for a conversation, but I'm not going to be, trusting about it and um you know it's really never happened the funny thing is uh since i was like 25 he he texts me like what's your address even though he has it i mean i have moved like three times in the last six years but he sends me a 500 dollars check with a blank card not even i love you nothing like from dad blank card like just purchased two three dollar card and a 500 hundred dollar check so <laughs> i mean I don't know if that's his way of saying he cares, but it's really not mine. So, yeah, that's heavy, dude. Um, yeah, part of me, my empath inside of me, wants to just, just reach out and kind of hug you through the screen. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, I think it's fascinating when you look at the reasons for why people do the things they do. You know, I, I never try to simplify and put everything into a black and white box. Um, that's why I try to break down like why my father does the things he does or did. Um, I think there's remorse on his side, um, maybe a little more than what your father is doing. I, my, my, my father actually would always say, I love you. Um, and I think it was his way of like trying to like, you know, he would say it so frequently, like try to convince me of it in a way, you know what I mean? Because I do think that on his end that he, uh, um, I do think he wishes circumstances were different. I think he visualizes himself as a different man, a different person, um, but he can't go backwards. And so he just kind of lives into the way the present is. And he, you know, 
He did say something to me that was fascinating. I was too young to really understand it. And I, I, part of me thinks it's genius. Part of me thinks it's bullshit, but hang on for this one. Um, he said to me, I think I was either 16, 17 years old. We were sitting down at a, at a diner having some dinner. And he says to me, looks in my eyes and he says, uh, he says, now, son, you got to understand that when you were born, I had to make a decision. I either had to be there for you or not be there for you. And by not being there for you was my way of being there for you. And I was like, I heard that and I let it sit and spin around for a minute. And I'm like, wow, dad, like what an amazing man, you know, like what, you know, I'm so glad you didn't come to my football games and things of that nature. Like, I, I, I appreciate that. You, you've really done the best for me. But now at 35, you know, there is something to it of saying, you know, look, my responsibility is to be this man for you and be this hard or this rock for you. I can't do that for you. I need to get the hell out of the way. Um, I do thank him for that. And uh, maybe I shouldn't, but uh, I do. <clears throat> and um, I think there was some genius to what he said that day. So what, what do you think of that, though? Bullshit or genius? <laughs> I mean, that's confusing to say to, like, that age group, you know what I mean? 16, 17-year-old. Uh, I mean, in the aspect, like, to me, I would, like, break that down in terms of, like, maybe he thought he was a screw-up or if he was in your life at that point, like, you would have turned out not the way you should have turned out. So he stepped aside, per se. I don't know if that's an excuse or in that moment, whatever he said, that, you know, he possibly knew that, you know, your mom, your, your, you know, grandfather, grandparents were a better kind of option to, to mold you. And even thinking about when, when you were talking, going back to the, I love you thing, he's never said, I love you to me in my life. He's never said, I love you. So I just thought back and I just realized that. So I think that was one of those things. I didn't hear it from him. So I didn't say it to my mom. Um, and for some reason, then I thought it was okay. Uh, I don't know subconsciously to say I love you, but it's just like what should be so natural is like a fight to get out the words to get out. Yeah. Well, what would you say then Roman is um, <clears throat> not just some of the issues, but like, what would you say is, you know, the alpha issue that you faced in your life? Um, <clears throat> maybe the top two uh, challenges that you maybe didn't realize that you were, um, you know, it was a characteristic of you. Um, that you were presenting to other people that you believe to be a byproduct of your father's um, relationship with you. I know you said trust. That was a big one. Yeah. Trust, trust in business and stuff like that. And like personal life, I think like anger, like getting unproportionally angry to certain situations and how to cope with it um, and how to uh, deescalate. Because I don't know if you ever escalated a situation or a, like an altercation. I'm not saying I go around and beat people up or look for <laughs> trouble. But, you know, if somebody gets in your face or there's a disagreement, uh, it's usually if there's two guys, sometimes, you know, one of them needs the last word. And I would not leave it at the last word. I would like 
trumpet. So they were like, you know, shut up, you know, I'm going to beat you up. Like, then do it. And then I would get up and then they would get up and then I would get in the person's face. And, and usually a lot of people are all talk, you know, I'm not saying like I've been in all these crazy brawls, but usually when like you say, okay, let's go. And, and most people with anything else online or, you know, in professional world, there's like different groups of people. There's like doers, there's talkers and there's watchers. So there's only a certain selective people that are like, screw it. I'm just going to get up. And if this is a situation, this is the situation. And I remember actually it almost got me in trouble in my professional life because, I mean, we may talk about it. We may not. I was a criminal justice major, interned with the Circuit Service. Recession hit, had a pivot, went into digital marketing. And then that, you know, that story goes on. We can get into it. But I worked for uh, a company uh, called LexisNexis, and I was 24 or 25 at the time and uh, went out to lunch with a bunch of guys. And I'm not saying I'm like this huge alpha, but like I'm not, I don't take really nonsense. I'll call somebody out and I, maybe it's because of like the way I grew up or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, I was like, stop, stop saying that. Stop saying that. And I'm like, stop saying I'm going to get up and do something. So I got up and threw the kid with his chair like the Buffalo Wild Wings. So even though that was offsite and not in the office, somebody like went and to, to HR like snitched. And they're like, you know, even though it's not on, on site, we're aware of it. And the thing is, I squashed it with the kid right after. So an hour later, you know, I saw him like go to the bathroom. I'm like, listen, it got blown out of proportion. There's nothing against you. Like it was just a situation where like there was a bunch of dudes who were trying to show off and I wasn't really happy having it. And we squashed it there. And like two, three days later, we were in a chart. It's like, there is no issue. They're like, well, we can't, it's not like a, a terminating offense. I'm like, then why am I here? Because, you know, somebody through the grapevine maybe didn't like me or was like jealous of my performance or, you know, the fact that I was getting promoted so much that, you know, they, they went and kind of like snitched on me. So that situation I regret. And I think that is a part of that escalation of anger that I've, you know, worked on, I guess my whole life that could have resulted in, you know, a termination where then that's on my record and, you know, my professional career could have went a different path. Yeah, those are, uh, those are, uh, the situations when you look back in your thirties, you know, cause you were in your twenties then. Um, yeah, that's where a 30 year old man could have told the 20 year old man, Hey, hey young buck, it ain't worth it. You know, but when you're in your twenties, you're full of, of this, just, I got to prove myself to everyone. And you, you had a lot more, um, you know, visceral in you to have to do that. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think it's fascinating, um, to, uh, just kind of look at the way I am versus the way my father is. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Physically, I can see him in me, um, and I'll try to hold on to, you know, different features, whatever way I can. But the um, it, it, when you talk about the cyclical nature of it, do you ever do you ever wonder if it's the extreme nature in which your dad presented himself that maybe his father didn't quite get to that extreme? Or maybe he did. I don't know. But it seems like every generation maybe pushed it a little bit further, a little bit further. And then finally your father pushed it to the edge. Um, and it actually caused you to break the cycle. Do you ever think about it that way? Cause like, what's your, what's your brother like? Is he, do you guys mirror each other or is he more of your father? 
uh, different? Like, you know, because you broke the cycle here. You you refused to be like him. You know, you ever think about it that way? Yeah, I mean, that's the other, I guess, angle of it. We um, He's four years and 11 months younger than me. So, you know, when I was 15, he was 10. When I was, you know, 2015. So I try to actually be a role model for him too. Um, you know, have that kind of differentiation. My father had two siblings pass away when they were like young, like, you know, like one, two or whatever situation it was. So he had a sister. So that dynamic is a little different because obviously I had a brother and he had a sister. Um, His dad, I mean, even if there was arguments or situations, he didn't get as violent or as loud or stuff like that. I don't, I don't recall, but I mean, I wasn't there when, when he was growing up. So I don't know. It was like generation, like an escalation, and I'm the one that chose to kind of change that path. But I mean, I have no I- idea. I mean, I just, I just told myself I don't want to be like this dude. Like, there's no reason for me to, to, uh, to be like that. And it's, it's like one of those things where you know we're talking about fathers, and, and like you said, yours was in your life, and an example of like two sons. You know, they both went through the same situation. Their dad treated them the same, probably crappy, or they saw abuse or neglect or or whatever. One turned out and used that as like fire to fuel them for change. And now they're like motivated, they're hungry, possibly successful in terms of their endeavors. And then one used that as a crutch in terms of, you know, well, now I'm, you know, drugs because of my father i'm alcoholic because of my father i'm homeless because of my father and like thinking about that dynamic too is really interesting oh that's huge yeah that's really interesting because you just explained me and my my younger brother um wow yeah that's so so the case too often uh i you know i see cases where uh you know people talk they do use that crutch and it's like you know at some point you have to you have to say, you know, I, I used to be a dean of students, okay, so I have a counselor with a lot of students, and I would say to them, I'm like, I would literally say, listen, you know, because the adults in your life are so shitty, um, that is not your fault, okay, but at some point, you're going to have to, you know, take that off and from make a decision that every decision you make from this day forward will be your fault if you, you go down this road. It's like, you know, trying to get them to understand that, like, you know, you are a byproduct of shitty adults, but like at some point you now are accountable for your decisions. And that's a, that's kind of a, that's a hard, um, that's a hard concept to get them to grasp at times because they're just so bitter and, and angry. Um, I never had that bitterness and angry in me. Maybe my brother did. I'm not sure. Um, we'll have to have those conversations, but uh, you know, when I look at my own personal struggles, when I was asking you, you were talking about trust. I I'm never like, um, I'm never content in the same place. So therefore it's hard for me to like, um, stay at a job for too long or like, cause I'm constantly like a dreamer. And I got that from my dad, I believe, because he was always on the go. Um, but like, I'm trying to use it to like better myself rather than just be a hopeless wanderer. But I, I do think that that makes me hard to, um, commit to someone. Um, I've had multiple relationships that I would be in for a long period of time. And then when it would get really real, I would, I would find reasons for it not to work the way it should. Um, and at 35, I'm really trying to focus, you know, I'm with someone and I'm really trying to focus on her and me and see where that goes and hopefully kind of get over that hill because up until now, you know, you know, I'm 35. So I'm like, 
yeah, Robert, what are you doing here? You know, you kind of got to make a move here. Um, and, and she's worth it. So, but, um, transitioning here in the last 10 minutes or so to you as a father, how many kids you got? Um, and how long have you been married, man? Uh, so I got married in, uh, 2014. So it's been eight years this past May. Uh, I'm a foster dad. So in the past four years, I've had 27 kids in my home. Um, that journey started with my wife and I going through uh, six miscarriages in the last four years, two of which happening back to back Christmas days. So you have family coming over, so on and so forth. And then obviously that happens. So I think that led us to uh, potentially a way to start our family, obviously still um, natural, tr uh, naturally trying, but um, also being able to, um, to help. And this situation, almost every child uh, in our home has not had a father at all. And even if they're present, they just don't take accountability. Like they haven't come for a visit in like a year or like they have other kids with like other women. So now they're with another woman. So they focus on those kids and the kids with, you know, in their past, they just kind of like let go. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge because it's, it's, it's rough. Um, the system is, is broken and, and situations and seeing kids, come from helpless situations we usually have kids that are younger so from birth to kind of that toddler um preschool age and um yeah i mean it's it's been definitely a blessing and it's one of those things where if i look back uh five years ago and you asked me you know do you think you would you know foster kids i'd probably say no let alone 27 and then let alone having five kids under the age of four at one time so it's one of those things where you don't know what you're capable of but I mean, like, like we just discussed this whole conversation, like if you're just present, like even present, like remembering that my mom with the whole spelling thing, like there's situations where, you know, the kids remember like me, you know, building some little Lego thing with them and just taking the time at night or reading a story or tucking them in or helping them take a bath or whatever. So, I mean, the little things kind of add up. You don't have to do these monster things for a child, but literally just be present like you don't have to figure it all out at once but being present and doing your best yeah yeah you you don't have to be perfect you just have to be present um i think too often and I, that's a show for another day but you know the idea of perfect parenting and making all the right decisions it's not possible you know fail forward as a parent and do the best you can and just be present and i think you'll find that you'll have better results in the end than you and you don't, um, man, what a, uh, you know, commendable thing, you know, that you're doing, um, 27 kids, all, not all, but you said majority of which fatherless, um, what's the trait? What's the reason? Why, why, why more men than women? Is it because that we were not able to, uh, you know, carry the child. So we feel detached and we, we, you know, we make excuses. Like, why, why, why do you believe that's the case when you, when you kind of dissect the brain of the, the man versus the female? I mean, their situations is a lot of the time the, the fathers don't know they're the fathers. Then there's situations where they have multiple kids, like I said, and, you know, they're all talk, but 
don't want to do anything, don't want to put in the effort, and then just want the kids to get taken away. So then they could say, look, look, they're taking my kids. I, I, you know, I still have a call with them, but do nothing in terms of a plan to get them back. Or unfortunately, there's situations of, you know, rape and things like that, where obviously the child is conceived and, you know, that person really, you know, committed, you know, a crime against the mother and, you know, the children are being taken away. So obviously the mothers aren't fit. So there's a lot of um, mental abuse. There's a lot of generational stuff, which I've seen. So the parents of the parents of the children um, were in foster care and their parents were in foster care. So that situation was never corrected. So, you know, that behavior, um, that kind of using things in terms of crutches. So, uh, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, a lot of mental illness as well, which is sad because, I, I mean, that's actually another show because I feel like U.S. and a lot of other countries, it's one of those things kind of like, yeah, we're doing something about it, but it's not really addressed. Mental illness is a huge problem, especially in uh, inner cities. You know, you see a lot of people and you see a lot of, unfortunately, homeless people. Um, that are mentally ill, that you know don't have a place to go, that aren't medicated, that aren't getting therapy. So there's a lot of that. You know, we had a child that we currently have. We had him for a year and a half. We said it's not a good idea to reunify um, his sister and him with the biological mom. She had mental illness, and literally a month and a half later, he was in a system with the sister because same exact thing happened that, you know, they were neglected and left home alone for, you know, God knows how long because, you know, she's she's mentally not there. So I think in all those situations, addressing the problem and really treating the problem, having a discussion, coming to terms with things, treating, you know, in terms of therapy or rehab and really having a multi kind of prong approach. But, you know, the government doesn't do a good job in a lot of things, especially the division of child services. So there isn't a lot of therapy. Kids are treated as, as numbers and the parents are, are basically given the bare minimum to do in situations. So it's kind of like, Hey, okay. Like tie your shoe and you know, you get your kid back. It's like, it, it's literally like kindergarten in terms of the hoops they have to go through. And us as foster parents were limited so much. So I can't even give like over the counter, like uh, children's Tylenol or vitamins. I need to get a script for that. And every single little thing I have to like, you know, I can't take them out of the state for more than a certain amount of time. I can't do this, that, or the other, but you know, when they're with their biological parents or, or guardians, whoever they got taken away from, it's kind of like a whole different story. And unfortunately the system favors, you know, biological parents, and guardians and i think really babies them and by babying them and not taking that band-aid off they just prolong that situation and don't really help in the reunification process yeah that's man that's fascinating there's so much there and i i actually see it on the other end too because like i said i was a dean of students for six years um you're right the, there's the number of things that he's talking about ladies and gentlemen is like these kids become numbers is because there's so many facets and reasons for that is because number one, there's not enough bodies working in those, those jobs to be able to have that, you know, you're never going to get one-to-one -one relationships with, you know, caseworkers and children, but you, you know, you would like it to be a hell of a lot smaller than it is right now. It's like the amount of bad parents versus people that are willing to work those jobs, you know, it's just astronomical. It's like, you know, you know, like when we, that's why, 
as a uh, automated uh, response um, um, at the school, we, we have to re, you know we have to call about everything that we see and hear. Um, and you'll hear some crazy stories from some elementary kids. You'll see some crazy things on some high school kids. And then you you know you call, and you'll be on the phone waiting. You know you'll call social services. You'll be on the phone waiting with them for half hour before you even speak to somebody because there's so many other people in front of you. It's an everyday occurrence. So, yeah. Uh, it does seem backwards, though, that uh, somebody like you and your wife who is willing to take in these children and to parent them, you know, voluntarily is given more restrictions than the biological parent in which it would take to get them back. That that seems to be backwards to me. But, um, you know, I am in favor of a biological parent getting their child back if they've done all the right things and they've shown that they're willing and they've learned, you know, that's. But you're right. That's a story for another day. A um, couple last things we can do before you leave, because, man, I think it's just been great conversation, Roman. You, um, how has, uh, you know, this now shaped you as a husband? You know, talking just about the father dynamic that you had. And I know you talked about how you're just being present with your children and things of the matter. How, how has it shaped you as a husband? Uh, I mean, it's affected our uh, marriage because obviously I've taken it into our marriage um, in terms of kind of like that relationship and lack thereof. So my wife's never met my dad, so she never she doesn't know like um, how he acted really firsthand. It's it's what I tell her. I mean, there's situations where you know I'll get a tone or my um, I guess my anger to a certain uh, situation is not proportional. Um, and then obviously that upsets her. So, you know, we've gone to therapy to talk about situations like that and how that's impacted or the relationship with, with him or the relationship between him and my mom and like that, what I, what I saw. So I think it, it definitely has um, played a part. It's, I wouldn't call it baggage. I would just call it scars. So like, you know, you go through life situations, traumatic situations are, you know, hurdles to overcome and their scars. So like they can heal or partially heal. Um, it's, it's obviously dependent on you, but you still carry them over time. So sometimes, you know, based on what we're going through, because as a couple, we've been through a lot, you know, we've had 27 kids. A lot of them were reunified, um, which a lot of reunifications were in favor of some didn't work out. There's promises, made by people in terms of some of the children being able we would be able to adopt them those didn't work out going through like i said the miscarriages having death in the family on both sides and just just a whole plethora of stuff condensed into a few years so that also added to it like you know situations so i would say the biggest thing is uh my i guess anger or disproportional anger for certain situations and uh, the ability to calm down or cool down. I think just learning, um, I guess, what upsets or triggers myself and her because we're obviously different and that I, I need to step away for a bit and kind of cool down. Um, and we're, if we're still like talking or still having the conversation, it just kind of agitates me. So I kind of like learning as I go and, and, you know, dealing with that, you know, situation that I, really brought into the relationship or, you know, I guess my background or my upbringing. Do you ever think that maybe you shoulder more um, than maybe you should at times because you 
are, you know, maybe not necessarily shoulder, but like you maybe push down more at times because you don't want to be angry about something or you don't want to respond in way in a manner in which your, you know, your father did. Do you ever feel like that, that you, maybe you need to communicate that more to get that off your chest earlier? Or do you, you feel like you, you're pretty conscious of that? I do, but it's one of those things where it's like your, your, you know, your emotional empathy and uh, EQ grows, and uh, you become conscious and aware of your behavior. But it, then it's easier said than done to correct <laughs> it. So I think I'm aware of like my triggers and my flaws, and like yay, and having conversations with people, and it's like deep conversations. Like, oh, you should be a a therapist or psychiatrist, but it's easier to recognize it and harder to take the steps to fix it so yeah i'm working on it but i think like i avoid cer certain circumstances and then that builds up that anger and then it it gets unproportionately like poured out into something that it shouldn't like a conversation where it's like why don't you drive the di drive the dishes like what do you mean why don't you drive the dishes blah, blah, blah. like get all loud and <laughs> you know belligerent and then it, that conversation goes into an argument and it's like that wasn't needed okay i could have been upset about it but it, it basically dragged on and built up and then released in that moment i mean there are arguments like you can have an argument civilly but like i kind of like harness things like you said and don't want to have that um i guess uh altercation and then build it up and then that kind of pours out into a a situation that's just a simple disagreement possibly most times. Yeah. You know, the, the biggest issue with me is listening to you talk, uh, is, uh, is uh, this idea. And I don't know if it's a male thing, um, but it, the sense of control. Right. So like in my, you know, mid thirties now I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, I don't need to control every thing around me. But when I look back on, you know, how I can like, you know, I try to do revisionist history. Like when I look back and I kind of, dissect a situation that went poorly like what can i do what can i learn from it how do i you know what can i do next time in the situation the problem is is that, that that's a two-way street right that's a relationship you know you're doing that with someone else who's not having that internal dialogue um, or that dialogue with you they might be having their own internal dialogue but they're not having the same dialogue with you so the next time that situation is present you're thinking okay here it is you know i just need to do a b and c and I can control how I get out of this the whole way, right? The problem is, is that you didn't have that conversation with your significant other or a partner or another relationship of some sort. And they do the thing that triggers you. And then you're like, you might even overcome that one trigger. And then it's like, okay, wait a minute. And then you're just off to the races, right? But yeah, to me, it's about trying to figure out that, hey, I don't need to control everything. And when I do go in with the idea of controlling something, I need to be more flexible, Uh and so that I don't get triggered earlier, but take that or leave it, man. I don't know if that helps you. <laughs> no, it um, does. So the last thing I'll say though, uh, or I'll ask you Roman, and I think it's pretty significant um, because not everybody could do what you did. And it's a conversation that we're going to have on this show uh, in the near future. It's this idea of the power of forgiveness. Um, you mentioned way early in the, in the, in the broadcast here that you, you forgave your father Um given the circumstances and the topic today, um, how long did that take you to do? Or maybe just talk about, you know, how you came to terms to be able to do that and why you did it. Because I've actually seen cases in court where uh, a father or a mother will look at the, you know, the murderer 
of their child, you know, the, the, you know, the person sitting across from them and they will forgive them. I, I, I just don't know where that strength comes from to be able to do that. Um, you know, how, how, how were you able to find it and uh, why did you feel it was necessary for you? Yeah. I mean, I guess in my um, mid twenties, uh, I started kind of feeling it like it was holding me back or it's like carrying a burden that wasn't necessary. So it's like having a, a weight weight vest with like 200 pounds for no reason. Like what, what's the point <laughs> other than like working out for, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes with it. Why are you carrying it for like the rest of your life? Like all you have to do is kind of let go. And at that point it was like, it's nothing I did. Like the way he acted coming to terms is like, I didn't cause that. Like I didn't cause him to be violent. I didn't cause him to cheat. I didn't cause him to, you know, not be around. So it was like coming to terms and being at peace. So just I didn't want that kind of hate or that negativity in my life anymore and that bitterness because it added to the whole, you know, pot of, you know, anger and bitterness. And I, you know, I was already I feeling angry about uh, a lot of things and a lot of things really bothering me. So I just didn't want to carry it around anymore. I didn't I didn't want to give him that satisfaction like it was actually bothering me as well. So like, what, what is the point? You know, I, I didn't, he was no longer in my life for at that point a year or two. So there was no reason to, to carry that around. It wasn't, it wasn't healthy. And, um, you know, I, I went to therapy a few times and really kind of come to terms or like, I have to kind of let this go, um, you know, forgive him personally. Um, but you know, at, at some point he's going to pass away. You know, I believe in, you know, Jesus Christ, he's going to, atone for everything he did you know he's gonna you know talk about it and and really you know meet his maker and i'm not his maker you know i was i am his son and but i am not you know a mirror of him so well said man well said roman man great conversation buddy i uh really appreciated you come on i you know, you never know how these conversations are going to go. If you're going to be pushing something out of somebody, or if they've got a lot to say, and you definitely had a lot to say. And I feel like uh, you, we didn't even kind of scratch the surface on a lot of the things that you could present to a conversation. Um, but just wanted to say thanks again. I appreciate it. Uh, do you have any final words, any final thoughts on the show or life or anything in general, man? What's up? Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you having me on. Like, I mean, if it's a good conversation and, uh, it gets stuff out and gets you thinking you can really dissect it. I mean, this conversation, obviously we could keep going for, I would say hours, honestly, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation because I think it is an important conversation to have with the world, the direction it's heading. And like, every time you look, there's a new chaotic thing or, you know, just uncertainty around the corner. So, you know, a little less of that and coming to terms and, coming to terms with things that affected you and how they affected you and who you are and made you who you are now. I think it's important conversation to have. Yeah. And not just uh, coming to terms with them, but once you do come to terms, you know, coping mechanisms on how to uh, fight back against them. So uh, Roman, great conversation, ladies and gentlemen, we've been sitting here uh, talking to Roman uh, Prokopchuk uh, out of a uh, Jersey, New Jersey. Um, great conversation. I was glad to have him. If you guys, 
can do me a favor, review the show, rate the show, subscribe to the show, you know, hit that follow, like, subscribe button, do everything you can, and then uh, share it, you know, because I think there's a lot of, uh, if you know anybody that was, you know, part of a single mother, um, you know, a single child growing up, or even had their father who might have been abusive in the household, you know, please share this story because I think there's things in this episode that they can take and maybe help them along their journey. So other than that, we'll see you guys uh, in the next episode. See you on down the road.